The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they are there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through, through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel." and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Okay, we're in Jonah chapter 4 today. It's Jonah 1 through, Jonah 4, 1 through 4. And this is entitled, A Gracious and Merciful God. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. A story is told about George Bush Sr. when he was in uh, the White House. His wife, Barbara, and his son, George W., were talking about religion. George W., at least at that time, held the view that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and apart from him, no one can be saved. 
Barbara, not understanding the nature of God or the fallen state of man, remarked that surely God in his grace would have a plan for the sincere followers of other religions. Eventually, she said to one of the White House staff, get me Billy Graham. The operators got hold of him and Barbara told him what they were discussing. Billy's answer was that as a believer in the New Testament, he had to agree that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that it is through personal faith in him. The amazing part of this story to me isn't Billy's response at all. It ought to be obvious to anyone who's even skimmed through the New Testament. What I find hard to believe is that Barbara Bush was unaware of this, and for several reasons. First, she was supposedly raised in a Christian setting. That means that for her entire life, no one properly explained to her either the message of Jesus or the doom of those who fail to accept him. And secondly, having consulted with Billy Graham, she must have been familiar with his sermons. Her disagreement with George W. shows that despite hearing him, she never listened to his words. Let there be no mistake at all about it from our perspective here at the Superior Word. We boldly and we unapologetically proclaim that the Bible is true, and it says that there is one and only one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. The Bible is abundantly clear on this. One needs to dismiss the entire premise of the Bible to come to any other conclusion. If you're struggling with this, or if you're unsure that this is what the Bible teaches, please meet with me, and we'll go through those verses clearly, and I will show you where it is unambiguous in the Bible. This is what it states. So far in chapters 1 through 3, we've seen Jonah called to preach, he fled, he was punished, and he was restored. After this, he got about the business, which he should have done when God first called him to preach to the Ninevites. Today, we'll see a typical troubled human being filled with self-pitying, animosity, and selfishness. But by using a person like Jonah, we can better and more clearly see the contrast between man and God. He is patient, giving, and abundantly merciful. Our text first comes from Jeremiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Baruch's self-pitying is similar to that of Jonah. But God responded firmly and yet tenderly to both Baruch and Jonah. Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe and is one of the people in the Bible whom archaeology is actually substantiated as being a real historical person. In 1975, a clay bula containing a seal and his name was excavated at the Burnt House, which is an archaeological site of research in Israel. In 1996, a second bula was found with the same seal, but it also had a fingerprint on it, possibly of Baruch himself. Now just imagine that. In our text first today, Baruch was completely despondent over the tragedies occurring around him in Jerusalem as it was being destroyed by her enemies, so much so that he cried out in misery. The Lord responded that because the nation was being punished collectively, he couldn't expect that he would lie in roses while everything else fell apart around him. The Lord said to him a couple verses later, and do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. 
I bring this up because whether it was Baruch or Jonah or you or me, we are all subject to weakness and despair, and we are also all subject to whatever ill comes upon our land. When the ball drops, and eventually it will, we need to not seek great things for ourselves. It very well may be that the rapture won't happen until some point long after a complete economic collapse. And so we need to be prepared to keep our eyes on the Lord through good times and bad. This is one of the constant messages that we find in the pages of the Bible. It is a book of hope, but also a book of warning. Always be prepared. Such are the lessons which are found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, there is no way that I could fit all 11 verses of chapter 4 into one sermon. And so I had to divide them up. And this is just a very short sermon today. It comprises, our sermon is uh, just four verses. And it has only this one section in it. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. And it was evil to Jonah, displeased whoppingly, and he was kindled with anger. The timing of the entire fourth chapter is argued over by scholars almost ad nauseum. What appears to be the case is that Jonah preached his message throughout the 40-day period and then left the city only to see that his words of pending destruction did not come about. Verse 1 follows after that thought. And so chapter 4 is a description of what occurred between the Lord and Jonah after the 40th day. Of this first verse, many scholars cite John Calvin, who erringly states the following. This is John Calvin's words. He connected his own ministry with the glory of God, and rightly, because it depended on his authority. Jonah, when he entered Nineveh, did not utter his cry as a private individual, but professed himself to be sent by God. Now, if the proclamation of Jonah is found to be false, the disgrace will fall upon the author of the call himself, namely God. This is where he's wrong. There is no doubt, therefore, that Jonah took it ill that the name of God was exposed to the revilings of the heathen, as though he terrified without cause. Calvin is wrong. Jonah cared far less about the glory of God at this point than in his own personal condition. This is perfectly evident from the context of the story. From his run upon his original calling by the Lord to the coming words of this chapter, he has demonstrated that it is he himself and not God who is the center of his thoughts. Remember how we ended last week, verse 310. Then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Some years ago, one of my friends posted on her Facebook wall, it's okay to get angry with God. He can take it. Is it okay? It depends on how you translate with. If it indicates being angry at God, then the answer I would say is no. If you mean along with, then the answer is yes. What angers God should anger us. As long as our anger is not vented so much at him as it is to him or along with him, then we don't err. If you've ever seen the movie The Apostle, one of my favorite movies of all time with Robert Duvall, then you might remember a scene where he was up in the night. He, it was late in the evening, and he's out there venting to the Lord at the top of his voice. He said, Lord, I'm angry. 
I don't understand why this is happening. I've been your servant since I was a little boy, and I am angry, Lord. His mother, who was played by uh, June Carter Cash, just lay in bed, and she's enjoying his rant, and a neighbor calls to complain about the yelling. She just smiles and said that her boy was venting to the Lord, and then she hung up. Venting, as long as it does not call into question the Lord's right to conduct his affairs as he sees fit, is perfectly fine. Jonah was angry at the Lord because he felt foolish that he'd been called to preach that Nineveh would be destroyed. But if the people repented, he knew that he'd look like a false prophet and a buffoon. Questioning God's wisdom isn't unique to the Old Testament. In Acts, we read about a skeptic of the Lord's decision named Ananias. He had a vision of the Lord and was told to go to a certain place and put his hands on Paul to heal him. Instead, he responded as if the Lord had no idea what he was doing. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God has no idea what he's doing. We're right, and he must be wrong. When we get the urge to question his decisions, we need to remember what he said to Isaiah. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is infinitely wiser than we are. No matter how much we know or we ever could know, it is infinitely less than what he knows. When the Bible instructs us, it's because he knows what is best for his little creatures. To Jonah now, what has transpired appears to him to be the highest form of disgrace. At this point, like when he first ran from the Lord, he is completely self-consumed. He has forgotten who commissioned him and even who it is that created him. He has become so enraged that he sits there in his own mental pity party. His reputation, oh, he'll look like a fool when nothing happens. Poor Jonah, he must bear that burden. His commission as a prophet, oh my, prophets of Israel will be mocked and scorned by the heathen nations. Poor Jonah, he must bear that disgrace. Nineveh gets away with murder while Israel is bound to the minutest details of the law. My great country, oh, and me, because I'm in that country, it falls on me. We carry such a torch. We have to be the shining example, but all is for naught, apparently. Poor Jonah. And worst of all, I'm a Hebrew. I carry with me the fathers and the oracles and the traditions and the name. These are just unworthy Gentiles who need to be eradicated as vermin, not spared like wayward children. Poor Jonah. In his attitude, he's treating the Lord's mercy not as a divine attribute, but as a divine failing. What should radiate out in perfection is seen to him to radiate out in fault. How could the Lord, who had given such noble and strict guidelines to Israel, forgive such a terrible and weighty set of transgressions by a group of people? He's looking at a very small part of the picture, and he's failing to see Israel the law, and the office of prophet in their proper context. 
And above all, his attitude, in essence, places his personal emotions and feelings above the sovereignty of God, who alone decides the direction of his will towards his creatures. In fairness to Jonah, we all do this to some extent, don't we? Anytime we question God's good intent because of displeasing events which surround us, we assume that we know more, or at least better, than he does. This we cannot do. The pattern of Jonah's anger and jealousy is repeated in the book of Acts. The Jews saw the efforts of the apostles in converting the Gentiles to Christ, and they stewed over it. They fought against it, and they went to the point of physical attacks in order to quench it. They threw a national pity party at the goodness of the Lord in calling the detestable enemy to share in the favor that they alone believed they had earned and which they alone deserved. What is surprising about the words here that Jonah if he is the true author of the book, does not attempt to hide his state in this writing. If it was some unknown Jew who wrote the book, it still doesn't change the openness of recording Jonah's self-consumed state. He, a Hebrew and a prophet of God, is being fully exposed for the attitude that he bore at this time. The desire of Jonah for the destruction of Nineveh is not unjust in and of itself. Destruction of sin, and thus the sinner, is what will happen when it is not repented of. Jonah's sin is disputing with the Lord who intended for Nineveh to repent and to be saved. And what an amazing sin considering the magnitude of mercy which has already been monumentally manifested in him. He is a miserable man mired in mourning at the ministry meant to magnify his master and not merely him. Verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord, Vayit Palel el Yehovah, and he prayed unto Yehovah. The word pray here is palal. It's the same word which was used in Jonah 2 verse 1 when he was first inside the belly of the fish, and it is the last time that it's going to be used in scripture. At the time when he was in the fish, he realized that he was delivered from death, and he made his prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord even from the belly of the fish. Now he prays again, but this time, instead of thanksgiving, he is in a state of vexed rage. The vexer himself is now vexed. In the belly of the fish, his words were orderly, calm, and well thought out. Here, his words will almost be the opposite. Instead of thankfulness to the Lord for his deliverance from death, they will petition him for it. John Gill rightly states that prayer should be fervent indeed, but not like that of a man in a fever. There should be a warmth and ardor of affection in it, but it should be without wrath as well as without doubting. Verse 2 continues, And said, Ah, Lord, Vayomar Anna Yehovah, and said, I pray, Yehovah. This is the last of 13 times that the word Anna, or I beseech you, is found in Scripture. It is a contraction of two other words, Ahava, meaning love, and Na, which means please. In essence, it means I beg of you. It is a begging which would come from the soul of a man in a deep and heartfelt petition. It was used by the sailors in Jonah 1 verse 14 when begging for the Lord to not hold them guilty for Jonah's blood when they cast him off the boat. Now it is used by Jonah in exactly the opposite manner. They had asked for life in exchange for taking life. He is asking for death because of the granting of life. The level of mental confusion because of his perception of the world around him is astonishing, and yet not uncommon. 
To this day, the Jews in general cannot perceive of the Lord granting his mercy to the Gentiles through a mere act of faith, while at the same time holding them accountable for their own infractions against his law. Verse 2 continues, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? The not this I said while I, when I, was in my ground. Exactly what he said is not recorded, but it can be inferred from the story. He had spoken to the Lord exactly that which came about. He understood that the word of the Lord he was asked to speak would result in the repentance of the people. This shows quite clearly that John Calvin's assessment, which I cited above, is wholly inaccurate. Jonah was not concerned about the glory of God, except possibly in its display through divine judgment. It was certainly not in whether his word might fail. The call was one expecting repentance, not expressing assured judgment. In what seems a curious choice of words, Jonah uses the term adama or ground, instead of eretz, or land, in this verse. Adama is generally used to indicate the soil, coming from the word adom, or red. It is the same word from which adam, or man, is derived. It is the word used in the early Genesis account to indicate the adama, or ground, from which adam, or man, was taken when he was created. The word is deeply intertwined with man, creation, and redemption. It is used by Ezekiel almost exclusively in his book. He speaks to a people who are in exile and out of favor with the Lord. But the Lord time and time again promises a restoration to them to the Adama. On the other hand, when Cain was punished for killing Abel, he was cursed in the Adama, which received his brother's blood so that the Adama would no longer yield its strength, and he was driven from the face of the Adama. What was originally intended to bring forth life would not. It is in Genesis, as in Ezekiel, as in Jonah, all pointing to the Adam, or man, who would come from Adam, the first man, who came from the Adama, or red ground. It is referring to the Messiah. Jonah's choice of words here is purposeful. He is conveying an understanding that while he was in the Adama, that life would be the result of his cry unto Nineveh. But how could they be given life when they were not of the Adama that he was derived from? He could not understand the spiritual connection that these Gentiles could have to the Lord. The Messiah was of and for the Jews, was he not? Surely he knew better than God about his plans and intentions for the people of the world. And these Gentiles were not a part of that plan. Duh! They, like Cain, were not destined for Eden, but for banishment and exile from the Lord's presence. Had the Lord forgotten such a simple thing? Verse 2 continues, Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. Alken kidmati livroach Tarshisha. Because so I hastened to flee Tarshish. As we saw in chapter 1, the meaning of the name Tarshish is debated. But to a Hebrew audience, it might have appeared to indicate two words which together mean either white dove or dove white. Jonah flitted about to find a place to flee to, and his eyes alighted on a place which bears the traits of who he is. As I explained then, Tarshish was a descendant of Japheth, the second son of Noah, and the one who was given a like blessing to Shem with these words, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. 
In contrast to this, Nineveh was a city built by their ancestor Nimrod, a descendant of Ham, Noah's youngest. He received no such blessing. He had done something perverted to his father, and so his father withheld any blessing upon him and instead cursed Ham's own youngest son, Canaan. Jonah saw it better to flee to one who would dwell in the tents of Shem than to preach repentance to a line of such disgraceful people as those in Nineveh. Surely the Lord had forgotten such a simple thing. Verse 2 continues, For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Ki adati ki ata el hanun verachum erek apayim verav chesed. For I know, for you, God, gracious and merciful, slow of nostril, and great covenant loyalty. These words, though not a quote, are very closely reflective of the words of the Lord himself to Moses way back in Exodus 34, verse 6, where it says this, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jonah acknowledges that Jehovah is El, or God, the Mighty One. From that, he then says that he is gracious. The word is Hanun. It's an adjective used for the last of 13 times. In all instances, it is only used when speaking of the Lord. When it is used, it gives the sense of hearing the cries of those who are vexed and cry out to him. It is as if he is unable to hear such cries without responding to their need. Next, he says, verachum, and merciful. It is an adjective, which is also seen for the last of 13 times. And again, it is only used when speaking of the Lord. It is from the same root as the word rechem, meaning womb. One can see how, just as a mother cares for the child in her womb, so the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He next states that he is erech apayim, It is at times translated as long-suffering, or as we have here, slow to anger. He's willing to put up with the grief of his people, which they give him without immediately destroying them. The word arek is almost always used of the Lord's slowness at being aroused to anger. The word apayim means nostrils. This gives a much more vivid description for us to understand. He is slow at getting in an angry huff where the nostrils will flare and snort. It is his nature to retain a calm composure, even when anger is what should be anticipated. Jonah himself was the recipient of this divine favor. Instead of a raging Lord, he was shown great compassion and mercy. After this, he proclaims virav chesed, an abounding in goodness. The word chesed is deep and rich. It is a word that is often translated as loving kindness. It indicates favor, merciful kindness, and even pity. Jonah notes that he doesn't just possess this, but he possesses it in abundance. Verse 2 continues, One who relents from doing harm, v'nicham al-ha-ra'ah, and comforting concerning the evil. The word nacham means to conform or to console. It comes from a primitive root, which properly means to sigh. When one is angry at someone else and they apologize, If the apology is accepted, the one forgiving will sigh. Ah, okay, I forgive you. Jonah says that the Lord bears this quality and will sigh concerning the evil when repented of. There is an article in front of the word evil here, which almost personifies it. The people are infected with it, but when the infection is cast off, the Lord sighs 
and stands back from destruction. In Exodus 32, the Lord waxed hot against Israel for the sin of the golden calf, but through Moses' mediation, he was said to relent or sigh concerning their destruction. Jonah knew this story, as did all Israelites, and he understood this amazing quality of the Lord. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Ve'ata Yehovah kachna et nafshi. And now, Yehovah, take, I pray, my soul. This particular verse shows the perverse nature of us when we're despondent, but not suicidal. Think this through. Please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah asked the Lord to take his life. Here he's practically blaming the Lord for his calamity. And so maybe in a spiteful revenge, he asked him to take his life. If things were really bad, he could just go jump off of a cliff somewhere. But because he's unhappy with what the Lord has done, he puts the onus on the Lord to end his life, as if that would make everything all right. In being honest... How many of us do that constantly? Say two or 3,000 times a week, maybe? We tell the Lord how nice it would be if the rapture were today. As if what he's given us here is so bad that we deserve out of the billions of people on this earth to be granted a fate-sealing relief from our woes. What I mean is if the Lord comes today, millions and even billions of people will enter the tribulation period without ever knowing of God's wonderful gift. For me, oh, I won't have to spend all that time typing up another week's sermon, will I? That's a lot of headache. For any of us, we won't have to worry about what we're going to do to make a living in the years ahead. How many of you feel exactly the same way? Oh, I wish you'd come today, Lord Jesus. In essence, we are doing exactly what Jonah did. Please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. In our case, it may be true, the rapture is far preferable, But it shows that our priorities are not geared towards where we are right now. And this is where the Lord has us, right now. Verse 3 continues, For it is better for me to die than to live. To me, than me, for good, my death, than my life. Jonah's message has brought about the sparing of an entire city of people. But that means less to him than saving face in the eyes of the very people who have been spared. He was given a commission, and he carried it out grudgingly. Instead of rejoicing that he had performed his task obediently and successfully, he moans over the very success of the Lord which he had determined to come about. The words of Jonah now cannot be left without seeing them in a greater contrasting comparison to those of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the great victory of Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, over the 450 prophets of Baal had come about. With no more than a quiet call upon the Lord, fire was sent down from heaven to consume the offering that he had laid upon the altar. With that, the hearts of the people were turned back to the Lord with the mighty cry, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. After that, the prophets of Baal were seized and executed, and the rains returned to Israel after three and one-half years of drought. But no sooner had the victory been won than Jezebel had threatened to take his life. Upon hearing her words, he fled for his life into the wilderness and sat down under a broom tree, praying that he might die. He said, It is enough now. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's prayer for the Lord to take his life was because he perceived that he had failed in his task. 
the wicked king who directed the prophets of Baal still lived and had not repented of her wicked ways. In contrast to this, the king of Nineveh had stepped down from his throne in humility before the true God. Jonah's warnings had turned the wicked from their wicked ways, but this was of less moment to him than his own perceived superiority over these heathen people. Martin Luther, in his words concerning Jonah's flight, states, he was hostile to the city of Nineveh and still held a Jewish and carnal view of God. This is exactly what the story is telling us. It is a picture of the larger world where the Jews do not look to repentance from sin and salvation for the Gentile world is something that the Lord would offer. Nor do they consider repentance from sin as necessary for themselves. As the people of God, they believe that sin sticks to the Gentiles and cannot be cleansed off, but it does not affect their righteousness in his eyes because of his selection of them as his people. Like a Teflon coating, sin supposedly slips right off of them. The story of Jonah tells us exactly the opposite is true. God's mercy can cleanse the vilest sinner, but God's law can make none perfect apart from one who is already perfect under God's law. Verse 4, final verse of the day. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Vayomer Yehovah hahetev haralach. And said Yehovah, the good burning anger, you... The words are variously translated, but almost all of them give the sense of the New King James Version. When I read it, look at your Bible, it'll say something almost identical. Is it right for you to be angry? Right? Does your Bible say that? Something very similar to that. Okay. Only one one translation diverts from that pattern. Young's literal translation. He gives a completely different view by translating it, is doing good displeasing to thee? There is a mile of difference between the two translations, and it would be tempting to ignore the one rebel-translated version, but it is haunting to do so for a multitude of reasons. The coming seven verses finish the book of Jonah, and they have some interesting things going on in them, which tell us that there is more to the story than meets the eye. After struggling with my own limited translation, which leaned towards Young's and away from the majority, I spent an hour on the phone with Sergio going over these few words in verse 4. In the end, translating Hetev as doing good is correct. And so the words are to be translated as, Then the Lord said, Is the doing of good a reason for you to be furious? That is the question the Lord has asked Jonah, and it is the question I leave you with today. Is doing good a reason for you to be furious? Ask yourself this as if the Lord is asking you. The reason why is because he has shown you what is good, O man, and he asks you to be obedient to it. For Jonah, he was asked the question, and his response is, at least at this time, left unstated. When we return for our final verses next week, we will enter into one of the most enigmatic passages in the entire Bible. Far too often we are left asking, why does the story end as it does? The answers are in the words, and the words give us a picture of Christ and his work. We'll hope you join in for one last taste of this masterpiece of literature and wonder. And as I do each week, I'd like to take a moment to explain to you the overall message of Scripture, a portion of which is found in the sparing of Nineveh. It is God's grace to the undeserving souls which have risen up and offended him in a countless number of ways. That grace is found in the giving of his son for our transgressions. 
It is found in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we all have sin in us, every one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. The book of Jonah is going to end almost as a polemic against the Jewish people. Okay, I want you to understand that right now. And that's where it ends, and that's where you leave it. But the story doesn't end there, because then we have the destruction of Nineveh later in the book of Nahum, and we've got the promised restoration of Israel in the end times. So this is not just the Jews are out and the church is in, but sin infects every single one of us, Jew and Gentile. And the difference that we're being shown in the book of Jonah is that the Gentiles understood their sinful state, and they repented from it. The Jews did not and they still don't to this day, and so they need Jesus. That is the point of this entire book. It's the point of the entire Bible, is that without Jesus Christ, we have no remedy for the sin in our lives. But he came to die for our sins and to take that sin debt away. And this is going to be so, so evident when we go through the final verses next week. And I want to tell you, I want to ask you to do this. I'd like you to read those final verses, 4 through 11. Read them. I've read them every day now for three months or ever since I started the Jonah series. I've read them every day, and I've read them in Hebrew, and I've studied them, and I've gone back and forth over those. And I'm going to tell you, when you're reading those verses, think, is there another possible translation to these? Because when I give you what I give you, it is going to be unlike anything that you see in any Bible at any time. And you're going to say, well, where did that come from? And either I'm right or I'm wrong. But I'm going to tell you what, it is a marvel. It is a marvel if I'm right as to what these verses are showing us. Now, the picture I am right about, there's no doubt. Pictures, you know, what is the uh, plant that grows over his head and this and that, all those pictures, there's no doubt about. But what it's actually being translated as is something that I have somebody that agrees with me. And it wasn't because I led him into an agreement with me. I simply asked him some questions and said, what do you think about this? And he came to his own conclusions, which matched mine. But I'd like you to read those verses and think about it, because in my opinion, Jonah is one of the most marvelous stories in the Bible, and it seems to end kind of on a, you know. But the whole point of what I'm getting at right now is that regardless of the translation of Jonah is that you need Jesus. That sin is in your life. You need to call on Jesus and have it cleansed from you, and that's going to become evident next week. So there you go. Our closing verse comes from John chapter 7. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Right? That's what Jonah needed to do, judge with righteous judgment. Next week is Jonah 4, 5 through 11. The enigma will keep you guessing. It's entitled The Law and Grace, an object lesson. That'll be your 10th and final Jonah sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Now, before I get into our poem, which will take just one minute to read, I want to say one more time, next week is the last chapter of Jonah, And it is so different than anything that your Bible says that I've been reticent to even preach it. I'm not kidding. But I am certain it's correct. I wouldn't do this unless I was certain that it is correct, okay? I would not present to you something that I did not think was the Lord's word being handled properly. But I just want you to know it's going to be different than what your Bible says in several of the verses. Three of those 
There are four verses, I believe. Three of them correspond with Young's literal translation, just like the one that we just looked at. Young's literal translation, and if you can go online and read that right online, biblehub.com, and just go in and read Young's literal translation of those last verses, you may know what I'm thinking of. But the one verse he doesn't translate is the most important of all. And I don't know why he didn't go any further, but he didn't. A gracious and merciful God is our poem today. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I previously to Tarshish fled. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Instead, you would turn and bless. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This I feel assuredly. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry instead? How is it, Lord, that our hearts are bent on evil and away from you? We turn to the left rather than to the right. We follow after wickedness, searching out what's new. We pursue it, rising early and late into the night. But when grace is found, we rejoice on that day. We raise our hands in victory and sing our song to you. Through the cross of Calvary, our sins are washed away, and upon us comes true life, wonderful and new. But when we see others caught in their sin, we turn away as if it was never true with us. We smile upon the day when they will be done in, forgetting that once we were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to learn the lesson of Jonah as well, that we should have pity on the lost and wayward soul. Better to share the love of Christ than to see them cast into hell. Better to see that sinner added to heaven's roll. Grant us a heart to remember where we once were. Help us to remember this throughout all of our days. So by our words, many, many souls will be safe and secure. And together we can all sing to you songs of joy and praise. May it be so. May we speak openly about Jesus who came to die, not for some, but for every one of us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for getting me through this despite the sore throat that I'm slowly getting back. And uh, we have many, many people that we need to pray for right now. And we're going to do so collectively. The sick people of this congregation in attendance as well. There's more sniffles now than there were at the beginning of the church. We're all feeling it this week in a, a great way. We thank you for the restoration that does come at the end of the flu, but it is a burden to go through, Lord. So please be with each person that is carrying this burden and uh, help them to get through it and comfort them in the process. And our hearts go out to uh, Roy and Mike, who lost their mother this week. And we certainly pray for them. We pray that uh, they will be comforted in their time of loss. And they certainly are comforted because they know where their mother is because of Jesus Christ. They were praising you for her because she led her children to the Lord, and even grandchildren are following after that path. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, I just uh, I once again would petition you for each person here who is sick and uh, uh, struggling, and also for the prayer request that I mentioned at the beginning of this church for Josephine and her granddaughter, without getting into the details, which you are already aware of, Lord. Thank you for each person that's here, and uh, thank you for the chance to preach on this beautiful book of Jonah and before uh, we leave here today, I'd like to petition you one more time to uh, convict me that if I'm not writing what I am guessing about the book of Jonah, that uh, you would you would show me that before the end of the week. And uh, if it is correct, I commit it to you and your glory alone. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.